Alright friends, welcome once again to Thursday nights at West Hills. We are excited to be with you once again and be opening God's word to the book of First Peter. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there as we prepare to jump in. We are in week four. So far it's been a rich journey and one that I uh, trust has been helpful and encouraging to you all. I know it has been so for me, uh, and I trust that uh, that trend will continue even tonight as we continue to dig into God's word to us through the words of the Apostle Peter. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 12 of chapter 1 tonight. As we have seen over the last three weeks, Peter's principal theme in 1 Peter is sort of what we have summarized as living and suffering for the hope of glory. And what Peter is doing through his epistle here in 1 Peter is really multi-layered. There's a couple of different themes that we can trace, threads that we can track through the book of 1 Peter. And um, on on this first layer, really Peter is kind of walking believers through their own life. It's kind of a metaphysical reflection on the life of a Christian. And and as you'll notice, Peter starts even there in verse 3 by by indicating, first of all, our status as being born again. And so Peter not only is just giving us sort of a picture of, hey, here's our status. Here's who we are. We are born again. He's actually sort of drawing his readers by his literary forms and the way that he progresses the, the really the narrative, the sort of meta-narrative of the text as he progresses through. He's really saying, hey, put yourself back there. Start where you started. You're a newborn baby Christian. You've just been born again. And as he works through five chapters, as he continues, as he progresses, he starts building out this idea of the Christian life. What does it mean to grow? What does it mean to mature as a Christian, to grow into godliness? And this is illustrated nowhere more clearly there in chapter, when you get to chapter two, verse two, where he says, like newborn babies, right? So he's drawing you all the way back to, in two, two, he's drawing you back to one, three. He's saying, you've been born again, you're newborn babies. Because you're a newborn baby, act like a newborn baby long hunger for, desire the pure milk of the word. And what happens when you long for the pure milk of the word in chapter two, verse two, you grow in respect to salvation. And then as Peter continues, the whole, the whole rest of his argument speaks to that theme. And by the end, he's addressing elders, those who have been walking with the Lord faithfully in maturity for some time and are actually able at that point to actually go all the way back to chapter 1 and help those new baby believers, those new baby Christians, grow in respect to salvation, grow in respect to godliness. And so Peter's really whole, Peter's whole idea on, on, on the, sort of that top level, that, that first layer, his meta-narrative, the narrative behind the narrative, the story behind the story, is Peter tracing the life of a Christian from new birth to death into eternity. And, and that becomes one of Peter's primary themes as he presents what we might call a theological chronology of the Christian life, a theological timeline of 
Christian life. And so in that sense, then Peter paints for us a picture of the Christian life in all its fullness. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be born again? What does that look like for me? And so when you think about 1 Peter, if you study it on your own, or you return to this book in five years, ten years, and you and you think back, okay, how can I really frame 1 Peter? How can I understand it? You can start right there, that Peter is telling the story of the, of the Christian life. What does it look like to live, to walk, to really be born and then to die as a Christian in this life. So that's kind of this first level. Maybe on another level, Peter is also writing with an intent to encourage scattered, dispersed believers. And some commentators are called them the Petrine Church, the Church of Peter, uh, because Peter's really writing as a pastor. And this is not necessarily one isolated church, uh, but you think even if you look there, it's those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Um, so this is a scattered church. It's a church that's all over the place, but it's a church that is emphatically Peter's. Peter is writing to this church as their pastor. And this is really five chapters in a pastoral encouragement, pastoral word to this church to encourage them. And this is one of those things where it's, you know, it, it's sort of easy. And th- th- this, this sort of themes even come up from time to time on Thursday nights where it, how do you, how do you approach a Christian who is discouraged? How do you approach a Christian who's fearful? How do you approach a Christian who is dealing with doubts? What do you do with them? How do you deal with them? Peter does not have a bat in his hands when he's speaking to doubting, fearful, scattered believers who might be sitting here going, I am, I am not prepared. Nothing prepared me for the oppression and the persecution and the hardship that I am dealing with as a Christian. I'm scared. I'm fearful. I'm doubting. Peter does not come in with a baseball bat and say, poof! Get your life together, guy. No. Peter comes in almost like a, like a father or a mother, like, a, like a, a tender parent caring for their child. And really, you can kind of imagine Peter. And this is insane to imagine because if you think back to Peter, Peter was Mr. I'm a, I'm a son of thunder and I'm going to be Mr. Tough Guy. And oh, Jesus, I would literally die for you. Like, I'm going to pull out my sword and wham, cut off a guy's ear for you. I'm going to, you know, and you think of Peter as this very intense guy. He's a burly, tough fisherman. I mean, this is the guy, keep in mind, who's like, I love Jesus so much that when I see him cooking breakfast on the shore, I'm going to jump into the water with my clothes on and swim all the way to the shore. I mean, Peter is a guy, when you just talk about a zealous believer, that's Peter. Just read about him in the Gospels. Read about him in the book of Acts. He's a zealous guy. Peter writes this epistle. He's older. He's been walking with the Lord for a long time. He's been ministering to the people of God for a long time. And you can imagine, if you will, sort of these tough, rough, calloused fishermen's hands taking these baby Christians up in his arms. And he's, he's literally telling them, hey, let me remind you of what's true about God. Let me remind you of what's true about you. It's going to be okay. That's Peter's tone. That's Peter's approach. He's a pastor. He wants to help shepherd these believers. He's taking them up in his arms. His goal is to encourage them. His goal is to encourage you. So as we approach 1 Peter, we want to keep that in mind. Peter's speaking as a pastor. 
Peter is speaking a word of encouragement, a word to help build up the strength of the faith of these scattered believers. So tonight, as we look at these verses, hear Peter's words as if he is your pastor. Hear his words as if he is encouraging you as a new Christian or reminding you as a mature Christian of all of the benefits that come to those who have been born again. Benefits that aid us in holding fast to the gracious covenant God has made with us despite life's fiery trials and despite the growing pains that are necessary for us to move from babies to elders in our Christian maturity. Peter's trying to build a foundation here for these just freshly born again believers. And even as a mature believer, he's looking to remind them of where they have come from, remind them of, if you're in theology, the prolegomena, the first things, the initial principles that came to you when you were first brand new in the faith. And he's trying to remind them, how did you feel? And he's reminding them of that. Up to this point, just by way of reminder, Peter kicked off his epistle, his letter, by reminding, or really by rather declaring, the new birth, the the born-again status of these believers. Really, as a matter of fact, it's almost like Peter is so intent on getting to his end goal of talking about glory and talking about the suffering that leads to glory and all these things, that he takes the new birth kind of for granted. And it's just like, Peter's like, yeah. Duh, you're born again. That's just the reality. And that's really kind of how Peter paints it right there in verses three and five, right? The the new birth is just a matter of fact. It's just a true statement of reality for Peter. You have been born again. It's just that, it's that simple for Peter. And then what what Peter does then in verse five, connected with verse three, he causes us to be born again to a living hope, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We looked at two weeks ago. And then right after in verse five, He kind of recapitulates, he restates what he already said, but this time he says, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And so what Peter is doing is he's equating being born again with salvation. And we might go in our sort of Christian vernacular, we grow up around church, we grow up around Christian terminology, Christianese, the lingo, right? We say, well, to be born again is to be saved, to be saved is to be born again. And we get that and that's sort of intrinsically connected In our own minds. And Peter's like, hey, I need to remind you that these things are connected, but they're also distinct. They're two separate ideas. And really what Peter is saying is to be born again is to have the down payment, the deposit on that future salvation. Because this salvation hasn't come to these believers yet in verse 5. They're protected, protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So these, so these believers are walking, looking forward to that future grace, looking forward to that future salvation. We would call it in theological terms, glorification, the hope of glory, right? That's secured for us by the resurrection of Christ. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. To be born again, then, is to be brought into the covenant promise of eschatological salvation. What do I mean by that? To be brought into the promise of end times glory. At the end of all things, we have this promise as safe, as secure, as solid as can be, that we will reach 
glory. In other words, if you are in Christ by the new birth now, you will attain to the living hope, to the imperishable, unfading, undefiled inheritance. No questions, no comments, no concerns. So in 3 through 5 then, Peter positions the new birth as the gateway to the hope of glory. And then in 6 through 9, in sort of a strange and ironic twist for Peter, the new birth is also the gateway to the joy of suffering. Interesting. What did we talk about last week? In this you greatly rejoice, even though, literal, uh, even though for a little while you are beset by various trials. And so the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may, re, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. It's ironic for Peter, but it's intentional. He wants to remind us that the new birth and the joy that the new birth brings is the, the fuel in some sense, maybe the armor in another sense that gets us through the trials of this life. The joy of the new birth is so great that no trial, no tribulation, no problem that ever befalls us or besets us in this life can compare. It's, it's, it's as, as Paul Washer famously said, if you go watch the whole sermon that they used a clip for for the latest ShepCon uh, ad, if you want to go watch that, that's just my nerdiness coming out right there. But Paul Washer said famously that all of these things that the world can offer or all the things that the world throws at you, right? Whether it's, whether it's the temptations of all of these things that, that, that tempt you away from Christ or whether it's the trials and the tribulations and all these things that tempt you to put them away. If, he, if all those things are on one side of the scale and on Christ is on the other side, Christ and the joy that he brings, poof, outweighs them all 100% of the time. And that's Peter's whole point here is that if you have the new birth, if God in his mercy has caused you to be born again to this living hope, the joy that comes from that can't be matched by anything that this world has to offer or anything that this world will throw at you. Peter thus concurs with James that suffering through trials in this life is a joyful occasion, not because of the trials themselves. We know that they hurt. We know that they bring pain. We know that they are difficult. We know that they are hard. Nevertheless, they are joyful because the trials are what validates, verifies, and confirms our faith with the final outcome of this future salvation. So Peter really then in 3 through 5 presents a future view of the new birth, a future view of salvation, the hope of imperishable glory. And then he presents a present view of our salvation, the joy that we walk in despite the trials that we also walk in. We can walk in both together because we have the new birth, because our eyes are not fixed on this present reality, but on the future, we can walk through the present reality with joy, knowing what we have to look forward to. So we see the future, we see the present, and now Peter is going to jump into the past and he's going to deal with the true reality that the new birth, the grace, the salvation that has come to these believers right now that they walk in until they reach its fulfillment and glory is not just a present idea. It's not just a future idea. It is a past idea. It is an idea that was spoken of, searched through, inquired through by the prophets. For Peter, then, this truth, as is everything in chapter 1 up to this point, something that should be of great encouragement to us as Christians. Peter presents this truth in such a way that the hearts of these scattered believers cannot help but well up with joy. Knowing that what the prophets longed for, these believers have received in fullness. And that overflowing joy ought to then be our response as well. 
For we have also received in fullness that which the prophets saw and longed for. So, with all of those introductory matters in mind, let's work our way through this text tonight. Peter begins in verse 10. He says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. Peter begins by connecting his next idea in verse 10 with the previous two sections. That's the Greek word there, soterius, translated salvation. And Peter has already used it twice in verse 5. Protected by God through, through protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation. That's soterios in the Greek. And then again in verse 9, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation, the soterios of your souls. As to this soterios, salvation. So there it is a third time in verse 10. The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. So Peter is connecting the two. What's interesting is those two previous occurrences are actually two different perspectives, two dynamics of salvation. In verse 5, Peter uses this word to refer to the eschatological hope of bodily resurrection, that salvation that is stored up, protected for us in the future. That is the salvation of bodily resurrection. That's the salvation of glorification, the salvation of your bodies, as Paul would call it. This is proved, of course, by the connection to the resurrection of Christ. Christ's resurrection proves that one day we will have new, resurrected, new, glorified bodies. Our hope of eternal glory is intrinsically and uniquely bound up in the resurrection of Christ. To put it simply, if there is no resurrection, we have no future hope. We have no future hope of new creation, of bodily resurrection for ourselves. Simply put... As Jesus rose, so we shall rise. And then Peter parallels, this is a second sort of proof here. Peter parallels the salvation of verse 5, that future bodily salvation, with the salvation of verse 9. But how does he quantify that salvation in verse 9? What does the text say? Obtaining as the outcome of your faith, not the salvation of your bodies, the salvation of your souls. And so Peter speaks in concert with Paul and with other New Testament writers who talk about really this kind of this two pronged idea of salvation. There's the initial deposit of salvation that we receive upon our justification. And as we receive Christ, what do we talk about? We're born again. We receive this new inner life. The life of the spirit is poured out within us. But our new inner life still dwells inside a broken, decaying body. So we look forward to a second salvation, a second aspect of what it means to be saved, and that is that bodily resurrection. So Peter and Paul and the rest of the New Testament writers speak in concert here together that that there is the future salvation of your body and there is the present salvation of your soul. And that's what's in view there in verse 9. So verse 5, dealing with bodily salvation, it's a future hope it's eschatological we don't experience that physical renewal now and this is why just this is just a side note here but anytime you see a preacher on tv who claims to be able to heal people and provide bodily salvation to people doesn't ultimately understand the doctrine of the resurrection doesn't understand peter's teaching here or even the gospel itself but that's a conversation for another time before peter now is the salvation from the preceding verse verse 9 which he calls the salvation of your souls. What does this salvation look like? Go back to verse 8. 
It's a salvation that does not yet see Christ, but loves him. So it's a, it's a, it's a salvation that brings forth love for Christ. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him. It's a salvation that's based on faith, on belief, on trust. What does it result in? Joy, inexpressible, great joy. And finally, it's full of glory. So to be saved, to obtain salvation of your souls is marked by at least four things. Loving Christ, trusting Christ, rejoicing in Christ, glorying in Christ. And, and just by way of simple application here, this is, a, this is a very simple test of salvation. And oftentimes we get caught up. Maybe we wonder about our salvation. We wonder about our assurance. Am I really saved? And if you've been with us on, on Sunday mornings in Romans, you know, we, we see these high and lofty doctrines of God's election and of God's work and salvation. And we go, how can I be in light of that? How can I be sure that I'm saved? And people will often toss and turn at night and go, well, gosh, I wonder if I'm part of the elect. I wonder if God's chosen me. And that's sort of one of these common objections to these things. And Peter says here, hey, you want to know for sure that you're saved? Ask yourselves these questions. Do you love Christ? Do you trust Christ? Do you rejoice in Christ? Do you glory in Christ? If you can answer those questions, yes, you've captured the essence of what it means to be a Christian. Even in your own experience, that's what it means to have faith in Christ, to have saving faith in Christ. And of course, the outcome of that faith is, as promised, the salvation of our souls. So it is the loving, trusting, rejoicing, glorying soul salvation that Peter wants to dig further into here. And he specifically wants to dig in to the relationship that the prophets of the Old Testament had to this salvation. Which leads us to our next phrase there. As to this salvation, the prophets. So we have this nice idea here of the, the prophetic office of the Old Testament. What does Peter mean by the prophets? We should all know this, but I'll just remind you tonight that... By and large, in the, Old, in the New Testament, when somebody refers to the prophets in the New Testament, they are speaking of the authors of the Old Testament. And we have Jesus referring constantly to the law and to the prophets. And you have heard it written in the prophets. And we see that reference in every other New Testament book, referencing back to the prophets, what the prophets said, what the prophets wrote. And these are the men who are specifically endowed by God with this gift of divine revelation, those men who are able to say with authority, thus saith the Lord. That's a prophet. It's used regularly in the Gospels. We typically hear it as this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. If you do a quick search of that phrase, you'll find it like 25 times just in the book of Matthew alone. So effectively, what Peter is doing here is establishing a link in his own argument between the Old Testament and the New Testament, what he is saying is what I am speaking of, the grace and the salvation, the joy and the faith and the, joy and the glory and all of these things that I'm speaking of, these are not new concepts. These are not new ideas. These are ideas that come from the prophets, that come from the Old Testament. This is vital in our day to understand this link between these two things, that when we hear of salvation, that when we hear of grace in the New Testament, these are not ideas that are foreign to the Old Testament. We, we say this from up front all the time. We are whole Bible Christians. We believe that all of God's word is expired, right? That it's breathed out by God. And we believe that all of it is profitable and, and that equally so. All of God's word is equally profitable to what does Paul say in 2 Timothy? The man of God, the woman of God, the person of God, the believer. It's profitable. 
across the board. And so to prioritize the New Testament at the expense of the old, at least for Peter here in these verses, is to rob the believer of the great encouragement and joy to be had upon reflection of the value placed by the prophets on the salvation of the believer. Let me, let me simplify that for you. Peter says if you want to be... If you want to maximize your encouragement in the darkness of your life and in the trials and tribulations and the suffering that will inevitably befall you, if you want to have maximum encouragement and maximum ammo to walk with joy through those trials, you better cling to the Old Testament. Because these prophets looked forward to what you would receive and they looked forward with anticipation and with joy hoping that they would, like Simeon, see the day of the grace of the Messiah. And that's what we have seen. The Old Testament, then, is a source of great encouragement for the believer. So how does Peter describe these prophets? How does he identify them? Who are they? They're marked by three characteristics for Peter. These are the prophets, verse 10, who prophesied. Makes enough sense. A prophet who prophesies. If you're a prophet, you prophesy. If you prophesy, you're a prophet. Makes good sense. And, and it's important to, to note here that lexically, when you dig into Peter's language here, he means specifically predictive prophecy, prophecy that looks forward to the future, prophecy that predicts a future event that has not yet happened. What did they prophesy about? Verse 10, they prophesied of the grace, of the grace. It's also important to know, you know, as I mentioned, people misconstrue the Old Testament all the time and they go... Grace is, the new, grace is the New Testament. Grace is in the Gospels. Grace is in the Epistles. Grace is Paul's thing, right? Grace is not Moses' thing. Grace is not Elijah's thing. Grace is not Isaiah's thing. Peter, the, the, the New Testament's love and grace and all these things. The Old Testament is wrath and judgment and destruction and all these things. And Peter's like, no way, bro. He's, he's literally calling you. Look at the text. The prophets prophesied of grace. It wasn't, yes, it's judgment and wrath, and we see that. I mean, we've been in Isaiah on Sunday mornings. We know that judgment and wrath are certainly part of the Old Testament, but just as much and equally, I would argue so, is the prophets foretelling the grace that would come to us. Peter's asserting here what we might call covenantal continuity. In other words, there's an unbroken thread of redemptive grace that ties the Old and New Testaments together. And that ought to be encouraging for the believers in the dispersion. And that ought to be encouraging for every believer in the room tonight. The word here in the Greek is charis, translated grace. It's a common word in Peter's Bible, Peter's Old Testament. In the Greek translation, it appears almost, uh, almost, I wrote down 300 here. It's more like 315 times. 315 times in the Old Testament, it's where charis appears in the Old Testament, it's, and, it's, uh, and it's usually in the Old Testament in reference to God's favor, God's grace that's poured out on someone. We read of God's grace being poured out on Noah, on Abraham, on David, all in the Old Testament. Without going much deeper into it than that, Peter is clear that the new covenant, the covenant that consummates all the gracious covenants of God in the Old Testament, was predicted and prefigured by the prophets long before it came to fruition in Christ. What's further interesting about this is that Peter presupposes that the prophets spoke of grace. He doesn't make any effort to defend this assertion that the prophets prophesied of the grace that would come to you. He presupposes it. This is a, a foregone conclusion. This is a really simple, really easy reality for Peter to assert. He doesn't have to prove it. 
He's just like, yeah, the prophets prophesied of grace. Read what they wrote. It should be apparent. I think we would do well to look at Peter's presuppositions about the Old Testament, about the prophets, and adopt them for ourselves. Peter assumes that the Old Testament contains the gospel. Peter assumes that the Old Testament communicates grace. Peter assumes that the Old Testament should be read in light of the New. Peter assumes that the Old Testament should be understood in reference to the one in whom the fullness of grace and truth dwelt in bodily form, the God-man, Jesus Christ. How does Peter qualify the grace? As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace, that would come to you. The grace that is yours, the grace that belongs to the believer, the grace that the believer has experienced. If you're in the room tonight and you're in Christ, you know what that grace feels like. You can say with John Newton, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. If we've experienced that, we're in this group of people that Peter is addressing here. Peter believed that the prophets who, that as the prophets spoke, they were doing so with a view to the final new covenant people of God who would walk like they did as exiles in a land that was not their own. Contextually, then, Peter believes that this prophesied grace consists in the love, faith, joy, and glory of the church and is centered upon, fulfilled in, and delivered by Christ himself. This is really Peter's first great encouragement to us tonight and one that he will build upon over the course of these verses. The prophets looked forward to the new covenant of grace in Christ. They looked forward to the day when their faith would be made sight. This is the whole argument of Hebrews 11. We talked about the hall of fame of faith. That's the whole point is that all of these figures of the Old Testament who believed God like Abraham and it was counted to them as righteousness... They looked forward to something that they had not yet seen yet. We look backwards. What a blessing. We look backwards and we know the, the historical truth about Jesus Christ. We know the historical reality of the acts of the apostles. The Old Testament believers never knew all of that. They looked forward to it in faith. We look back on it as, as real true history. They look forward to it in a prophetic sense. And you see this throughout the entire Old Testament. Eve looked forward to her son, the head crusher. Noah looked forward to his ark, the giver of rest. Abraham looked forward to his seed, the son of promise. Judah looked forward to his scepter, the ruler of nations. Ruth looked forward to her, her redeemer, the bridegroom. David looked forward to his temple, the foundation of his eternal house. As we, as we mentioned, all of these died in faith. Like the book of Hebrews says, they looked forward to that grace. But Peter is clear that same grace has now come in fullness to these scattered, dispersed believers that he writes to. And that grace of the prophets has come to you and that grace of the prophets has come to me. Doesn't that encourage you tonight? Doesn't that warm your heart? You may have walked into this room tonight feeling alone, isolated. 
Your worldview is bombarded by falsehoods and lies. Skeptics throw stones at your beliefs and convictions. You're told you're on the wrong side of history because you believe in one way, one truth, one life, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Peter's word to you tonight, isolated believer, believer who is distraught and discouraged because of the trials and the suffering that surround us. Peter's word to you is this, you do not stand alone. Look at how great a cloud of witnesses stand alongside you on the way, having foretold by their words and by their works that grace would come to you. Peter says to you tonight that you now possess that promised grace. It has been poured out like anointing oil upon your head. What the prophets saw in types and shadows, you now see clearly in Christ. And we look forward to that day when even what we see now, clearly and yet not, clearly and yet dimly at the same time, we look forward to that imperishable hope of glory when our faith will be made sight. So Peter makes these three assumptions regarding the prophets. They're prophets, they prophesied, they prophesied of grace, and they prophesied of personal future grace for the people of God. But what did they actually do? How does Peter continue to describe their actions? He says there in verse 11, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And really what they did, you get it back up to verse 10 to really see this, the, the seedbed of that. The grace that would come to you. And what did they do? They made careful searches and inquiries. Careful searches, careful inquiries. The work of the prophet in prophesying grace is defined by Peter here as careful searching and careful inquiring. This is the work of a scholar. This is the work of an exegete, as we might say. But this is not merely brain work for a prophet. This is heart work. The Greek words used here, exetio and exorano, are used in the Septuagint to describe the person who searches or seeks not just after knowledge, not just after information, but searches and seeks after God. Searches and seeks after God. These words are used most numerously in the Old Testament in Psalm 119 where David extols and magnifies the word of God and commits himself time after time to seeking after the Lord, to inquiring after the Lord, to searching after the Lord. He extols God's word. He seeks God's help in interpreting it and declares that his desire is to mine its riches for spiritual treasures. That is the job of the prophet. They are students of the word even as they declare the word. And this is something that ought to inform the way that we think about the scriptures and the way that we think about the Old Testament. We often short sell the biblical authors and assume that they were just these guys. And we would say God spoke through them or God spoke to them and we kind of stop short and we just assume the biblical authors were in a vacuum. Assume that they were unaware of the developments that had led up to their ministry or that they were somehow ignorant of the scriptures that had been written up to that point. And Peter tells us the exact opposite here, that these prophets made careful searches, careful inquiries into the things of God. We need to understand that these biblical authors are master theologians who not, only, who not only understand the content of God's word, but love and extol it in their hearts like David. 
And this is why we constantly cite the Old Testament foundations of the New Testament truths that we teach. We should honor the words of the prophets and extol them because they were careful to ensure that what they were saying was from God and was accurate. So, what were the prophets searching and inquiring for? I've labeled it there on your outline, the times and the seasons. What does the text say? They were seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glory to follow. It's important to note here that there's some question on translation here, or specifically with that phrase, seeking to know what person or time. If you're reading from the New American, it'll say what person or time. If you're reading the uh, new, the New International Version, the NIV, it'll say times and circumstances rather than person and time. I tend to favor the NIV as it seems to fit the Old Testament data better. There was no question for the Old Testament prophets on who they were talking about. There was no question about the person. They were speaking of the Christ. They were speaking of the Messiah. There was no question about the person. There was, however, the question of time. When is he going to appear? When is the promised Messiah, the promised Christ, going to come forth? When would he burst on the scene? This is a natural and logical question to ask if you put yourself in the shoes of the prophets. They understand the gravity. They understand the centrality of the coming Messiah. From Eve onward, those who spoke prophetically about the Messiah, they looked forward to the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. And their prayer and their hope was consistently that they would see grace appear with their own eyes, that they would live to see the day of the Messiah. The way that Moses records the birth of Cain suggests that Eve thought that Cain very well may be the one who would crush the head of the serpent. Those same linguistic markers indicate that Abraham thought that it would be Isaac, Jacob thought that it may be Joseph, and David thought that it might be Solomon. All these hope to see the Messiah in their day. And this is then the same hope and anticipation that captivated Simeon in the temple as he worshipped. And it was the reason that he was able to die in peace, having finally seen the baby Messiah in his day. So these prophets make careful searches, careful inquiries, and their inquiries regard the times and the seasons of the Messiah and the, and the importance of that for Peter is that they are looking forward to this day with such great anticipation and with such great almost agony. It's an agonizing longing. When will he appear? When will the Savior come? Peter further explains the searching and inquiring of the prophets. Specifically, it is concerning the Spirit's predictions of the sufferings of Christ and the glories of Christ. What does the text say? Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he, that is the Spirit, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. By his grammatical construction here, Peter is linking the sufferings and glories of Christ to the grace that would come to the scattered believers in verse 10. Sufferings of Christ then blaze the trail for the sufferings of the Christian. And this is what Paul has in mind in Romans 8, 
When he says in verses 16 and 17, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Do you hear the parallel in the language there between Peter and Paul? The sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. If indeed we suffer with Christ so that we may also be glorified with him. Peter links the two together. Our suffering is bound up in the suffering of Christ. Our glory is bound up in the glory of Christ. Peter's prophesied grace of verse 11 is the grace to be heirs of God with Christ by our union with him in his suffering and in his glory. Thus, as the Spirit predicts the suffering and glory of Christ in the Old Testament, by extension, he also predicts the suffering and glory of the believer in Christ. Therefore, we might say this. The prophets spoke with power into not only the Christological path of suffering to glory, but also the Christian path of suffering to glory. Christ walks that path we walk that path in union with him. Now, I had prepared, before I had gone massively off script over the last 45 minutes, to read all of Psalm 22, which is the most classic Old Testament example of the Spirit of Christ indicating that path of suffering to glory. I'm not going to read all of Psalm 22, but I encourage you to write that down and read what David has to say as he predicts the sufferings of Christ that lead to the glory of Christ. I'll just read you the first section and the last section. I'll cut out the middle so you know at least a little bit of what I'm talking about. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is David writing this. We we know that from the mouth of Christ on the cross. David's the one that wrote that. All Christ is doing on the cross is singing a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. That's how Psalm 22 begins. That's the suffering. And how does it end? In glory. The kingdom is the Lord's. He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will both eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow down before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive, posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come forth and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. Starts with the suffering and the groaning, the cry of David and really the cry of Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And by the end of Psalm 22, we get from the cross of Christ to Philippians 2. Christ is the one whose name is above every other name. He is the one who is exalted so that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he is Lord. And then how does he end it? Psalm 22, how does David end it? They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. That's us. We're the ones who would be born, the ones who would have righteousness declared to us as part of the glory of Christ that he accomplished through his sufferings. This then, this path from suffering to glory is David's experience. It's Christ's experience. It's our experience. The word of David then in his prophetic office here in Psalm 22 is, Christ-centered, and it's 
Christian. And Peter's not the only one that teaches this. Just in case you were confused about the suffering to glory and this whole mantra. In case you were confused, Peter's not speaking alone. Peter's not even speaking of his own accord. Listen to Luke 24, 25 through 27. This is Jesus on the road to Emmaus. These two guys. And he said to them, Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that who? The prophets have spoken. Same word there, predicted prophecy. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer all these things and then to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them all the things concerning himself in the scriptures. (coughs) David is clear. Peter is clear. Christ is clear. His path of suffering that leads to glory, it's not a new idea. This is the idea of the Old Testament. Go to Isaiah 53. Read any lament psalms, and you can hear the words of David echoed in the life of Christ. Scriptures thus bear continual witness to the path of Christ from suffering to glory. In his path, as our Savior, as our covenant head, is our path. Let the world despise, forsake me. They have left my Savior too. The trials and tribulations of this life that the apostle mentions in verses 6 through 9 were predicted by the prophets. And thus, those prophets stand in solidarity with us. All you got to do is look at Acts 7 to understand that the prophets were persecuted and abandoned and forsaken and stoned and beaten and all of these things. It's not, there's nothing new under the sun. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. To reflect on the sufferings and the glory of Christ for Peter and for His scattered believers, and for us, is a great encouragement. Why? We are not alone in the tribulation. We are not alone in the trial. For as we stand in the midst of the figurative furnace, that fourth man is always there, having withstood the flames himself, not being tempted with anything that is uncommon to our own experience. And therefore is able to help us in our weakness. The prophets' predictions of the sufferings of Christ are reflections on that fulfillment in his life. Serves as a great encouragement to us. In our sufferings, we are not alone. Not only do the prophets stand with us, but Christ himself stands with us. Verse 12 then Peter begins to conclude his brief excursus on the ministry of the prophets by tying all of this together in this purpose statement in verse 12. What does he say? It was revealed to them, that is the prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. 
The ministry of the prophets was not first and foremost for themselves. It was not for first and foremost their times and their seasons, but it was for these scattered believers. It is for us. A lot of modern Bible students will try to claim that the primary ministry of the prophets was in their own day. And that's true. The prophets aren't just sort of standing in this vacuum, speaking into some future reality with no context of their own lives and their own experiences. Certainly they were, but Peter says that to limit the prophets to such a manner of speaking is foolishness. The prophets throughout the Old Testament were keenly aware that they were ministering to believers in our day, to the people of God living in the days when all these things will be fulfilled. Again, for the umpteenth time tonight, we see in Peter the deep and abiding value, the treasure of the Old Testament, specifically of the prophets. Our understanding is more fully developed and our hearts are more hopefully encouraged as we see the Old Testament continually, time after time, confirmed Again and again. Every, I mean, every time. Every time we see someone believe Christ, repent of their sins, and commit their lives to following him, that's the Old Testament fulfilled before our very eyes. How encouraging. Moving on, then we see Peter teaching us about the unity of prophecy and preaching. What does he say there in verse 12? In these things... Right, That's the link there, that the prophets were declaring these things, and these are the same things which have now been announced to you through those who preached the gospel. So we see this unity between the prophecy of the Old Testament and the preaching of the New Testament. Old Testament prophecy, New Testament preaching, both are vehicles, both are means of grace. Both are the means by which our love and our faith and our joy and our glory of verse 8 come to pass. And both are, as we see, verse 11... The Spirit of Christ within them was indicating those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. Both prophecy and preaching come from the Spirit of God. Thus, again, the Old Testament is equally valuable, equally important, equally applicable to our life as it prophesies and foretells of the new birth as the Old Testament, which equally declares in the preaching of the gospel, the new birth. Peter concludes then with a really strange addendum. It's like, um, that, whoa, why did he say that? That doesn't make any sense. On his face, Peter's inspired. Therefore, he always makes sense. What does he say? These are things, the things which have been announced to you in the gospel. They were prophesied. They were preached to you in the gospel. What are these things? Things into which angels long to look. What could this mean? The salvation, the grace, the love, the joy, the faith, the glory is something into which angels long to look. To put it in the vernacular, in the colloquial, angels long for, they are envious of the benefits of believers. I mean, that's a strong statement. Envy, isn't envy a sin? 
I use that as a figure of speech. I mean, the angels are actually envious, but they long. They have this deep and abiding desire. They, they have not seen. They cannot see into the benefits that we have as believers, but they long for it. As outsiders looking in, they long for these things. They desire these things. Things into which angels long to look. How can this be? We like to extol angels, right? Angels, they surround the throne of God and they're the servants standing and they've got eyes all over the place and wings all over the place. And they float around and they sing constantly, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And they come and they announce the birth of Christ and they speak of miracles. And we know from the Old Testament that they deliver the word of God. They do all these things as servants. How could they? Angels are awesome. How could they long to look into our benefits, into our grace that we have received? How does it work? Think about this. Angels know God only as his servants. Christians know God as sons and daughters. Angels know God in his holiness primarily. What do they do? They surround the throne and they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Christians certainly know God in his holiness, but they know God in his grace and in his mercy. Thus, Christians then have received a a greater benefit, a greater knowledge of God even than the angels have. Here's what's even more interesting. This passage supports an old doctrine known in Latin as the Felix Culpa. Felix Culpa, what could that mean? The fortunate fall. How could the fall be fortunate? Let me explain. From the perspective of angels, the the fall is only fortunate because it is only in that context of sin and brokenness and wickedness that we can truly and experientially understand and know and love God in his grace, in his mercy, in his salvation, and and in his redemption. Simply put, if there's no fall, there's no grace. All of us are just like angels. We know God in his perfection. We know him in his holiness. We walk before that. We worship him for it. But we never know grace. We never know redemption. There's no need for it. No black backdrop of sin. No gleaming diamond of salvation. No Adam. No Christ. The glory of grace is necessitated logically by the evil of the fall. Thus we can praise God that in our experience it pleased him to bring greater good out of evil rather than to not allow evil to exist at all. This is the glory that angels long to look into, the glory of having been the recipients of God's grace, God's mercy, God's redemption, and God's salvation. These are the glories of the grace, the glories of the gospel that was prophesied and preached into which we long, into which we stand and into which angels long to look. We experience this grace. Angels simply long to look into it. Why the addendum for the angels? Paul, excuse me, Peter is intent upon encouraging believers. Encouraging them simply because the grace, the mercy, the salvation that they have received is so great. So good, so beautiful, that even the glorious angels long to look into that salvation, long to have experienced that salvation. 
when trials abound, when tribulations come, when suffering happens, when we're persecuted. Peter wants to remind these believers that they can look to the longing of angels into their grace and reflect on how great a salvation they have received. Peter's intent is to encourage these believers and by extension to encourage you and I. He does this by declaring that the ministry of prophets and angels looks forward and looks up to the grace that we have received. It is so great, so matchless, so divine that prophets inquired and searched for it and angels long to look into it. We experience it. We live it. We walk in the fulfillment of love and faith and joy and glory that the prophets predicted and the angels long to know. As we conclude tonight, four consequences, four implications of this text. First, let's let our minds be strengthened by Peter's conviction that the Old Testament is full of God's grace and is intended to serve our faith as Christians today. Peter refuses to unhitch from the Old Testament because he sees in the Old and the New together a unity, a consistency in declaring grace, not only in the time of the Old Testament and in the time of the New Testament, but even in our day today. It's a consequence for our mind, a consequence for our hearts. May we let our hearts be warmed by the knowledge that we know by experience what the prophets only saw by prediction. What a great encouragement we have. What a privilege, what a benefit we have to live on the other side of the cross, the other side of the resurrection, the other side of the ascension, to be able to look back on historical realities rather than only looking forward to prophetic realities. We can stand, therefore, strong and firm, knowing that what the prophet spoke of has been fulfilled. And not only in an abstract sense out there in the universe somewhere, but it has been fulfilled in our lives. We need look no further than simply our presence here tonight, studying the word of God with joy and with diligence to see the proof that the grace that the prophet spoke of has come to fruition. It has come to fruition. It is coming to fruition in this room right now. Be encouraged, friends. Let our lives what do we do with this, right? What's the consequence for our lives, for our hands, right? Head, heart, hands. Let our lives be enriched by careful study of the Old Testament. Peter is clear. The Old Testament was given in your service, given for you, given for your salvation, given for your sanctification. Friends, we can't neglect the Old Testament. We ought to receive it with the same joy and care that we receive the rest of God's word. We ought to pour over it and ponder it and soak in it, allowing the words of the Old Testament to penetrate our spiritual pores and refresh us and cleanse us. Fourth, 
consequence. I stole this from my friend Matthew Barrett at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Worship Christ as the clamp. Christ as the clamp. What do I mean by that? Jesus is at the center of all of this. His sufferings and glory were predicted by the prophets and fulfilled by him. He is the one who embodies the grace prophesied in the Old Testament. He is, after all, dwelling, tabernacling among us grace and truth. John 1.14 Jesus, therefore, is the glue that holds it all together, the hinge upon which it all turns. He is the clamp that holds it all together at the very center of all of these things. Therefore, as we read the Old Testament, let us search and inquire like the prophets did for in what ways Christ fulfilled these things. And as we read the Gospels in the New Testament, may we commit ourselves to searching and inquiring after the ways in which Christ in those narratives, in those stories, in those teachings fulfills all that was written in the law and in the prophets. Seeing in our own experience what Peter, James, and John saw with their eyes as Moses and Elijah were consumed by the glory of Christ. And who is left when all is said and done after the earthquake and the bright shining light of the glory of God, Christ alone stands on top of the Mount of Transfiguration, and a voice from heaven cries out to Peter and James and John, who, Peter, who certainly has that event in mind right here, what does the Lord say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. May we commit ourselves to studying Christ the clamp who holds it all together. May we be encouraged tonight by, by Peter's words as we have seen the future reality of our salvation, the present reality of our salvation, and the past reality of our salvation. Future glory, present joy, past predictions. So what do we do now? Peter's going to tell us next week Therefore, in light of all these things, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There are implications of these doctrines for our lives today. We're going to dig into that next week in verse 13. Father, we thank you for the Old Testament. We thank you that the prophets foretold the grace that would come to us. They foretold our new birth. We thank you that we can go to the prophets for encouragement, that we can go to the Old Testament for exhortation, for growth and godliness. We thank you that we still have both testaments to teach us about Christ, to teach us about who he is, to teach us about the grace that can only be found in him. May we, as Peter did, Treasure and value the Old Testament. Treasure and value the prophets as they spoke, not serving themselves, but serving us. What a gift, God. We thank you for it. What a privilege. What a benefit. God, may we love your word. 
as Peter did. May we extol it. May we value it. May we treasure it. May we search and inquire like the prophets, like David, like the Bereans. May we seek to plumb the depths of your word so that having emerged from those depths, we have a greater vision of the embodiment of grace and truth of Jesus Christ upon whom all these things center and hinge.